I always find that to be the most challenging, at least for me, thing about solo playing. Is you're completely on your own. There's not another musician to have a dialogue with. So you're having inner dialogues. You know, how do you maintain that flow, that creative flow, that energy? Because um, you seem to have no problem with it, and without another musician to to lean on. It's just you. I mean, you could say just years of experience, yes, but maybe there's more to it, more to it than that as well. Well, like, so maybe the, one of the things that I've distilled from my experience that shows up in my practice as a, as a teacher was teaching students to, um, um, to have something within themselves that they're responding to as they play. So what I do is I provide that when I play with them. So I say, here's this, here's a kind of um, frame. I call them frames. Like here's a, an impetus, a kind of momentum, a kind of continuum. And I, I make these more or less repetitive, more or less rhythmic things that they can play to. And I say, just just fit yourself in the spaces and respond to it and converse with this thing that I play. And by the way, I'm going to change it. You know, it's not going to stay the same. <laughs> just deal with it. When it changes, you change. You know, you just... And and, yeah. and then I said, and, the, and ultimately the, the goal out of all of that in the future is that you learn that you can have that kind of thing going on within you. So that you're, when you're playing, you're dialoguing with something that's inside of yourself, a kind of musical gravity point from which things um, transpire which with which from which which from which ideas that you are playing relate to so I'm sometimes implying many things that I'm not playing that are kind of in this inner dialogue going on mm. as a, generally as a player that's and that's true in ensemble as well as as, as solo for me do you find that the actual space you're performing in, a small room versus a large room, um, how close the audience is, the size of the audience, does that also affect um, the, uh, I guess, maybe not affect the inner dialogue, but affect the approach a little bit to the solo music? In some practical ways and some other ways too. In practical ways, I'm very... I, I, I mean, I, I asked the question about the volume quite sincerely because yeah. I, I, I can't sometimes I can't fully tell in the dry room if I'm hurting anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, you know, it's it, the instrument has a lot of pressure, and I have I'm, my ears are quite sensitive. In fact, so I, I, um, I when I hear something that's loud and I'm, I'm kind of recoiling from it. I mean, sometimes loud is good, and sometimes right. uh, sometimes it's needed. Yes, but, but you have to be. You have to be um, judicious and careful about it, in my opinion. And 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 uh, and I do feel that a lot of there is some uh, sometimes insensitivity. Of course, it happens with students. I see it a lot, and I uh, you know I, I try to give a lot of feedback about how it feels to be on the other side of the instrument and and having this stuff pushed at you because the, instru- the instrument has a lot of acoustic pressure. But uh, most of the time, I'm playing in very very quiet Absolutely. dimensions and. Um, um, the, so in that respect, the room uh, has a lot to do with how successful things that are very intimate on the instrument can be. They, sounds that are very um, low-level dynamic but full of a lot of sonic detail work well in a room such as this because it's small enough and you're close enough and we can all kind of be with the instrument and with the detail and being able to appreciate all of the small information that's going on and all of its micro variations so that's a that's a rich sound world 
as to the as to the audience um, and its effect on on me and how I perhaps dialogue with it, I have a lot of feelings about about um, um, how do I put this in in all spaces, regardless of the amount of people. Um, Listening is something musicians talk a lot about. We talk a lot about what we hear and how we how we listen to each other as well as how we just generally listen. And one of the things that sort of become I've become aware of as time has gone on is that I am I am quite aware of somehow, in some sense or another, of what's going on inside of a room with people's ears and their concentration without looking and without it just it can kind of you can kind of feel it. Mm. And you have a sense that, it's, it maybe sounds a little bit weird and perhaps a bit spooky, but you have the idea after a while that, that in a way, the people who are listening, who are, who are really engaged in what's going on, in some way or another, actually have an effect on which way things go. Uh-huh. I mean, it's, it's if you're really listening, that's what should be happening, because it's, in a way, it's a communal experience. Um, of course, I'm the one making all the sound and, and responsible for the situation for which you've come to listen. But on the other hand, the audience has a responsibility as well. Yes. And and it's a kind of it's a kind of understanding that we go into when we come into a space as intimate as this, or even as even in larger spaces, that if you really engage in that experience, it can be quite a bit more profound for every, everybody uh. Uh, in both directions. And, um, and if people really getting involved and engaged in the, and have this kind of like feeling for it, the music will, will respond. They become part of the work. In a way, yes. In a way, in a way. Yeah. It's hard to explain exactly what that is in very, very tangible terms, but I, I do believe it's for real, uh. at least in my experience. Yeah. And maybe we don't need to talk about in tangible terms. It's the things that exist that's wonderful. Mm, yeah. I think so. Yeah. We can back up a little bit to the first piece you performed tonight. On the drive over here, I was thinking a little bit about um, getting a lot of a small amount of materials. I just happened to be thinking about posing limitations on yourself, trying to get a lot of sound out of small materials. That was an amazing display of that idea, just mm-hmm. with the symbol. Could you talk a little bit about how you developed that work and maybe this idea of how um, Doing something like performing on one sound source affects your your uh, improvising, your creative process in general. Okay. <laughs> you don't have to answer all of it if you don't want. <laughs> no, no, no. Sure. I'm happy to. Um, 
in the, 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 the solo work as it developed over the years went through various stages of of, um, of of investigation I'll put it that way and one of the investigations and I would call it around the second stage that, that, that yielded eventually the record tub works um, that I got I, I started to, to 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 I mean I began with a I began exploring much percussion and I do have percussion here it's not that I don't have percussion but I I began exploring many different, um, uh, you know, exp a, very, a very expansive color world and a very expansive um, sonic world. But I got to this point where, um, with a mixture of practicality in terms of travel and being able to take things with me, and a sense that there was much more to be gained out of, uh, much more possibility within the instruments that are sort of just the basic Buddy Rich setup, you know, it's yeah. <laughs> which I still play this uh. flat-out '50s look vibe, I'm, and I end up with these kind of drums that are like this, that are more or less from the '60s and '50s, and it it, it doesn't matter. It has little to do with what I'm interested in because I have this. There's a, there's a such a, str a, a strong amount of vocabulary, or uh, if you dig deep enough. Uh. So I yes, I put I did uh, arbitrarily put limitations on myself and made a piece for a snare drum, a hi hat a cymbal and a bass drum separately. And, and this caused me to go deeply like a scientist into the instrument and to see what are all the options. And as a process, it was, it was concurrent with another thing that happened even as early as the first recording that I made, the solo works recording. There I worked with a composer, his name is Earl Howard, and he and I sat and decided it would be useful for him at least, and it wasn't turned out to be very useful for me to make a list of all the things I could do with various parts of the instrument, which got me to thinking about this this idea of working with just limited amounts of things. So we we made a list. I made a list of everything I could do on a hi hat, even you know stroking the mat the mallet on the floor pedal and, and hitting the, the the rims in the side, and then and I would describe all these things with pictures and a little description and uh, and, and and give it a name, and we began to organize this vocabulary for him to make a piece. He was interested in, for instance, in, in lots of different kinds of forms of rubs and continuous sounds. So we really cataloged a lot of these sounds. And it got me, it got me to organizing my, thinking about, about the idea of, of vocabulary in general and that one, construct, one can construct pieces when one is aware of the um, potential of a vocabulary. And one can become more articulate if one becomes really um, um, facile and, and mm. clever with being able to use the vocabulary in a rubbery and flexible way. So I, I, I had to learn, not only did I have to learn these ways of playing these different uh, techniques and vocabularies, but I also had to figure out how to transition from one to another, for instance, these kinds of problems. So yes, I did it in, 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 by limiting it to a single instrument. I, I threw away some of the complexities of multidimensional um, orchestration and mm -hmm. just and just figured out how to develop as rich a sound world on one instrument. It just helped me focus on different different aspects. And so tonight you hear a, a, a solo cymbal piece, the very first piece, uh, that has gone through many, many, many different manifestations. And this is yet another one tonight. I didn't quite, I didn't quite ever do it quite like this, but I always change a little, you know, some detail of it in some way or another for, for almost every performance. And part of that was caused by the relationship with the with the video. Um, 
but at any rate, um, I'm, I, I recognize that that instrument in particular, among others, has so many possibilities. Yeah. Um, and um, the bow uh, itself has, has uh, which I've slowly gained more and more technique on, I, I still practice it quite a lot uh, on what it can do. So I think it also gives you as a listener a chance to go in to uh -huh. the sound. Yeah, That's the yeah. other point, uh, is that it's a nice place to start because, because you, you're not overwhelmed with a whole bunch of a torrential rainstorm of drumming coming at you. There's a nice not point. at first. That comes later. Yeah. <laughs> but first, we sort of ease you into the process by just inviting you in with pure sound. I've heard a lot of concerts that start the other way. Oh no, yeah. Starts full no, 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 no. But that's it's full nothing wrong okay. with that. It's just a different experience. Not that it's a different anymore. experience. you about the video component in general where in the evolution of your solo work did you start incorporating video how did it come about and uh, how does it influence your composing your improvising um, well the very first composition that I ever wrote in a kind of official way um, in other words I got a I got a in this case I got a grant to write a piece of, of these duets for different musicians and this was happened in 19 um, 77 and 1978 and um, they were based on the visual art of a friend of mine and at the time my my first wife my former wife was a, um, a visual artist I was involved a lot around the visual art community and I myself was very interested in visual arts though I didn't really practice it in any disciplined way I was just a, more of a more of a fan than an artist mm -hmm. myself but but I understood somehow I got a lot of resource, a lot of information from, from looking at visual art and seeing its possibilities. And, and from those paintings that, that my friend David Pallion created, I was able to deduce eight musical elements that I felt were inherent in his work. And in some way or another, I translated those into musical constructions. Mm. So that there, right from the very beginning, in a way, there was this parallel universe. And the other thing is that if I go back even further in my history, when I was yet only 14 years old, the first real piece of art that I made was a film. Um, oh, wow. I, I, uh, I was interested in cameras. I was also interested in tape recorders, so I had this fascinated with, with technology. So I had a camera and I made a, I made a piece. It, was only, it took me an entire year to make it, and it was only three and a half minutes long. It was mostly animation. But it was on the topic of the Chicago riots in 1968, which were quite a hot item at the time, and I was rather, how shall I say, affected by that uh. moment in history. 
and they happened right here, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so those particular open. riots that I watched on TV, and I sat in Connecticut where I grew up and watched them, and, and I, that, that really had a strong effect on me. And um, so the film was about that. I, I used images from it, and I and I took other. I made up my own images that kind of reflected it. And also, I was living in New Haven, where the Black Panther Party and, and uh, a lot of other things were going on. That were a lot of activity going on in New Haven, parallel to that. Mm. And uh, so somehow it all coalesced into me making a little film on this topic, and I presented it at my eighth grade assembly. You <laughs> 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 can believe that. <laughs> and I. <laughs> And I, I, I impressed my art teacher quite a bit, and he wow. handed me a book as a prize, as a kind of reward for this, which was an anthology of avant-garde filmmaking, which was mm -hmm. became one of my Bibles. Um, I, I, re I read this book from end to end, and I sought out every filmmaker in there, from Stan Brakhage to Stan Vanderbeek and all these guys. That book was hugely influential on me. So that was my, my interest in film really begins there. And I, I, I was set to go to a school. I was trying to pick a school to go to. My, my, my grandfather had a little money and I was able to go to a private school for, a boarding school for my high school time. So I was trying to pick a school and I found a school that had a, some film program in it. I said, that's the that's one the I want. That's the one. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about music at all, really, uh, but I was playing. Uh, but I said, that's the one I want to go to. In the end, Film, I got to the school and the film program didn't exist anymore, so I just started playing music. <laughs> wow. So that's how I ended up on the drums wow. as, a, as a profession. But, uh, but I, I never lost the thing for film, and slowly it, it, it came back. So I also, since I was around a lot of visual artists, Beth was one of these people I met, I actually came up with a multimedia project I wanted to do, and I invited her to participate in it. I applied for a grant. We had a filmmaker. We had her as a video artist. I had a guy writing a script, and I was going to work out this kind of Brothers Quay film. I had this whole concept I was developing. Never got funded. This project still hasn't happened, but it generated a relationship with this with this artist. And from that time, we started to do commercial work together. We did a bunch of Nickelodeon commercials and a whole bunch of other. It was really interesting, by the way, doing commercial work and in, in, in visuals and sound. And I learned a lot from that. And we started to get our vocabulary put together, our communication, and to sit and talk about these pieces and to try to find a translation between what music is and why there is any reason for anything visual to happen with it and to make it a real, a, a deeper connection where we could actually talk about the, the sense. For instance, the very first thing you saw, you might remember, is kind of like a box, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Remember that? And, and I described to her, I said, I have this vision, like the, the bow, when you, when you drop the bow down the side of the thing and the sound kind of emerges out of it, I'd like the light to escape around the edges of this box that's floating in space. She made it, she created it, it was beautiful, right? As if, and that was the concept, if you think, if you think about it, it's like I'm trying to, in a way, it's like the hair going down the side of the symbol and, and the sound kind of escaping out of this metal and it, like light coming from behind darkness. So that was, it's, there's a lot of thought behind the way in which those images evolve and what comes from it. Some of it, of what she does, is really intuitive, just by, by her this ear and her, like any artist, she works in a, other ways that we can't articulate so easily, but 
you know, the, we developed a language, and the calling you piece, the second piece that I, I that we did, that had had a bit more. We sat down one night, and I described it's a it's a Slim Whitman version of a tune, uh, when I'm calling you, or or Indian love calls, another name for it, and um, I. We, I actually, we looked at the lyrics and we looked at the meaning of the song and we kind of deduced a whole thing about memory and history and place and the West and the open spaces and the plains. And so that's why you see bulls running across the screen, you know, or the buffalo actually. And, and that's a Meyer Bridge photo of a, of a buffalo transposed into video and things like that. So many things were, were tied to the place from which that music is born that actually is at the heart of that piece. And I'm, of course, this, well, you could ask me a lot of questions about that piece, but the, <laughs> that, that, the way in which I, I engage the musical material that's pre-recorded and the way that I play is a, is a conversation between, I, I'm sort of like substituting myself for the recording and making a dialogue between mm-hmm. And that's you know, and that's tied again to the to the way in which you thought visually. I got a little bit off topic there. No, no, no. This is fantastic. Sorry, this is making my job super easy. <laughs> I just get to sit here and listen. This is fantastic. Are you still collaborating with? with yeah, yeah, yeah. Club? In fact, the bow piece uh, has 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 a extremely exciting element now because we've been. Uh, what I can't do when she's not with me is I. We do interactive work, so she's she's live now, and we have cameras on me, and she's filming what I'm doing. And she's using that material live, so we have now gone back to the to the symbol piece because we realized there was a lot inside of it, and um, she has developed. And I, it, it's very exciting. We haven't done it. You haven't performed it yet, but we've spent a tremendous amount of time developing a very deep tuning of her instrument and how to make. Um, uh, we came up with a whole bunch of ways of how to make a live version of myself working with the instrument and material that we decided upon layering this all together. So the piece has a whole new generation about to emerge. Fantastic. Great. Yep, still goes on. What's the name of that piece? Well, it doesn't have a name. Does, it doesn't really have a name. I, I had the, um, the name I used for a period of time was Behaviors. Because I made a program, the whole program was called Behaviors, and so I had Behaviors 1, Behaviors 2, not very interesting titles, I know. But, um, but in fact, the word behavior made a lot of sense to me, because I was, in a way, trying to, um, uh, to, to describe the whole action of how one makes this sound on a cymbal and how one works with this material as learning, thinking of it as a behavior, thinking of it as a sound behavior. That was a kind of poetic way of looking at the word. Will, he went down near the docks, where he often went, when the weather was at least halfway nice. As she did almost every day, Ellen met her there with a lunch freshly made. He knew he barely deserved such care, as he often had little to say in this short break from the monotonous machine work that shaped the day-to-day tonality of his existence. He often felt lost in its predictable rhythms. I asked you this question I read in a previous interview of yours, that you make a distinction 
between listening and hearing, mm-hmm. in which hearing includes the notion of understanding and translation. Mm-hmm. Could you maybe talk a little bit about this distinction between hearing and listening, how you came to develop this distinction? Yeah, well, I think listening is, is on some level we can look at it from the passive point of view, where one listens and observes and one takes in information and one basically, yeah, it, 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 there's this, the, the willingness to listen, I mean, they, they, they are in some ways the same word, in some ways distinct. Mm-hmm. And, and just, I, I wanted to make a distinction because in some way or another, I noticed that when one heard something, one applied one's own history of experience and one's own depth of understanding of what the potential of something could be if one could hear it and so hearing is sort of tied to understanding Mm -hmm. or an understanding that one has that's personal to oneself Uh so listening is on the other hand a more receptive um um behavior (laughs) dig (laughs) checking me out (laughs) juggling the vocabulary so so um and in, in, in some respects, they both, uh, both are valid and both are very, very useful. But I think that um, it, it comes up a lot again in teaching because I'm really interested in teaching. And, and in some ways, I notice that um, I, I notice a lot of misunderstandings about the word listening. Like, mm-hmm. like people are constantly telling other musicians or musicians are talking about, you've got to listen to what, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but I, I, sometimes I think that's a, it's a... It doesn't. It doesn't accurately describe what's really going on, because, in a way, when one is hearing what is happening, one isn't considering um, the any of the implications of, of 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 what it is. One is simply in that moment of hearing, right. so that the whole experience that you've got within you, that you can apply to the moment, is present and available. But at the same time, your access to that is a very, very highly um, uh, mo- momentary and changing thing that's on the on the intuitive side of the brain, and you're really you're you're acting very, very quickly and very, very fluently within this environment, and that's the environment of hearing to some degree. Uh-huh. Would you say that's absorbing more when the hearing environment? Not absorbing, Not absorbing so much, but just simply hearing how, for instance. Another way to look at it is in ensemble music. Um, uh, my experience is that when music, particularly improvised music, is going well, there is there is this thing that happens where you, uh, at least in my case, I, I can hear the composite um, music. Right. And I don't hear, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not so absorbed with what I'm doing, but with what I'm doing as it sits inside of the orchestration of the whole. Got it. And that, for me, is when music is really going really well in the improvised domain, that um, and creation is happening in this very momentary way. Um, um, there is this kind of magic that happens, and I don't think it's a magic so much as it, it is just the ability for the all the participants to be present. That can also be a solo issue as yeah, well. Yeah, for sure, for sure.
the city you came out of, New Haven, okay. the period that you were working there, and how much amazing activity was happening, and the fact that it's, I think, and you'll probably agree with me, been underdocumented. Would you agree with that? And why has it been underdocumented? And could you get on that? Because I know you're not that busy. Could you start documenting? <laughs> could you write a book about the New Haven scene? And because um, I would like to read it. <laughs> Well, joking, it, of course, but if you just well, want to talk about Well, you may be speaking in jest, but I actually made a stab at that very effort. And, really? And I, I, I uh, yeah, I, I, of course I recognized that, or at least I had the sense that in the balance of things, um, there was a distinct current of thinking, a, a kind of flow of musical direction that emerged from New Haven, if I can sort of generalize it in some way or another, I think it was this interest in how composition and improvisation interact. Mm -hmm. So we could say that came from, on the one hand, it, it emerged to some degree from Wadada Leo Smith, from Anthony Davis, George Lewis's experiments, others, but there were many people, it's true that it was a very vibrant community and there was a, 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 it was a kind of sister-brother relationship to the AACM, mm -hmm. interestingly enough. So I have this affinity to the city on many levels uh, that, that just happened by, by fate. But, but we really worked a lot in, in the kind of way that Mulhall's experimental ensemble worked on propositions of, of trying to understand the relationship of structure and form and really coherent um, investigations that were interwoven with improvisation. And so we did millions of experiments and worked very hard on this kind of way of thinking. Meanwhile, there was this whole contemporary music scene going on at Yale that we were influenced by. I was busy with electronic music in the Yale Electronic Music Studio, and so lots of things were going on there. There was lots happening in a relatively short amount of time, mostly happening between 1972 and 1979. The majority of these things all happened, and it carried into the 80s to some degree. Mm -hmm. and. Um, I, I had the notion to, to try to, um, because on the one hand, um, I have another, I have a, a number of different hats that I wear, and one of them is I, I, I'm a pretty good archiver, so I was the person with the recording technology, because I mentioned before I was interested in technology. And it's true, I, I had tape recorders from when I was a kid, and I, I, got a, I, I was the one who taped all the concerts, so I have, I have this huge, massive, reel-to-reel -reel collection of recordings from that time that are sitting in New Haven as we speak in an art, in a, in a uh, in the in the firehouse 12 uh, um, storage room at the oh. moment and about a third of the tapes have been transferred to digital and the idea is to eventually make a digital available a digital archive for research and study for everybody and um, because there's a lot of interesting material that happened then I don't think any of it's I don't think a lot of it's would be worth releasing particularly but it is interesting to hear the experiments and the work that we did at the time, and there's some, and there's probably some stuff that would be worth releasing, and that we, that's being discussed as well. So that was what I wanted to do, and then I had this great idea of having this kind of 40th anniversary where I try to bring everybody together, and I was going to make a film and interview everybody, and I started interviewing some of the people in New Haven. I interviewed Charles McPherson because he lived there wow. for a period of time. I interviewed Mark Dresser. I interviewed Anthony Davis. I did these long interviews with them. It was the beginning of my interest in doing interviews. And I had an idea that I wanted to sit down with everybody and really get into the, into the oral history and either probably make a film was my, uh, not a book, I was 
okay. maybe a book, but, but, but the film was the idea. But the thing that slowed me down, unfortunately, was Wadada, who at this, at the, and meanwhile, was busy with his own biography and actually had two contracts with two different book companies to do two different biographies. And he was a bit overwhelmed with how to make them different from each other, oh. let alone now I'm asking him to like, let's do it again. <laughs> he said, no. So, uh, so without his help, because he was central, I, I really couldn't see going on with it. Plus, it just required a, a massive effort on my part to make it happen. It was very hard to reach some of the people who had now left New York. Uh -huh. Dwight uh -huh. Andrews was a difficult person to reach. Some people were just... But then there were a lot of people who were really enthusiastic about it. Bobby Naughton was one of the people very enthusiastic about the idea. He gave me all these, these incredible rehearsal tapes that I didn't have. And so I started... It got serious for a minute, but... I don't know. We'll see. The archive is at least... It exists. It's, 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 it's motion. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's, it's an interesting it's history. Interesting history in, in American music. You know, it would be wonderful to, to see a film um, related to it. describe the interplay that's happening there mm. and overlaying that is there any distinctions in that between listening and hearing okay <laughs> um, uh, well I think both experiences in some way I'll talk about what's the same first. In, in many respects, this idea that one is able to engage in the composite reality of the, of the music. In other words, trying to encompass all that the experience is in the moment and stay with it, stay concentrated with it, isn't really that much different to me in, in ensemble music as it is in solo music. I would say those are relatively the same. Yes. In ensemble music, there's all this data coming in that I have to um, manage along with with my own contribution. But and so I I often, of course, I'm going to play less than I would if I were playing by myself in some respects. But I'm I am I'm trying to see where in the in the group experience I'm trying to understand clearly where 
I'm where, where whatever it is that I'm doing is needed and wherever it is not needed. And it's in the second part's more important than the first. Uh, I think the tendency to the tendency of, a, of an instrument that's as physical as this one is lends itself very quickly to the uh, diminishing return of playing too much. Playing, um, uh, play, uh, it's a physical instrument in respect of the fact that once you kind of gain a momentum, it's difficult to stop it. <laughs> and uh, there's tremendous tradition in, in music that has momentum, which I have great love and respect for and, and enjoy tremendously. I used it tonight. I played some old-fashioned uh, swing stuff, and um, this music has has great and powerful momentum. But one has to be careful with with forgetting what you're doing in the bigger structure. <laughs> and um, it's really easy to get carried away in the physical joy of playing and having a good time. That's like being a kid all over again. You know, like hey, I can I can do all this and I can do this and furthermore I can do this and. <laughs> So, but in solo, you have, um, yeah, I, I think somewhat the same way. I have to, I have to be careful again about about the space. So, one of the things I pay a lot of attention to in a solo performance is dynamic. So, you probably you probably noticed the uh, lots of waves and dynamic where things build, and I get fierce and angry, and you get, uh, I'm like this. This kind of energy is present, and when that energy is present. I have to I have to regulate it like a bull in a ring, you know. You gotta like be okay, okay, be cool. And then you know, then it's like, and then yeah, to just gently push, you know, let let that pull away. And so I don't know. There and there are musical techniques involved. I'm a composer as well as an improviser, so I'm thinking in in instant composition quite a lot. So I'm I'm. Uh, I, I know, for instance, the power of, of building up something and then like quickly letting it go and then, oh my god, there's this whole other thing going on and starts. So there are many techniques. And I apply some of those to group things. They may not always work, of course, because I'm in a group interplay, so I'm only partially responsible for what's going to happen. Um, but um, the listening and hearing, well, yeah, it's kind of, it's the same story in a, in a way. Um, I think that the most the most important thing I said about the hearing is 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 how to be present. I'll bring up one other interesting thing. I had a I, I also do interviews sometimes as well, and I interviewed my dear friend Mark Elias. And one thing that he said that was very interesting that I hadn't really thought about before, but it was a good point. When we were talking about improvising, and he he asked, you know, or he you know he posited that okay, isn't so if, if improvising is going well, we're in the moment. We're, we're right here, right now, and we're busy with what's happening. We have our strategies, we have our possibilities, we, have our, we, can, we can push the music some way, we can respond to it, we can, um, we can do a, there's lots of things we can apply, lots of, of, of methodologies we can apply. But basically, when it's going well, we're really, really busy with what's happening at that moment. And then, who, in the end, is looking after the logic of the larger curve of how that all goes together and makes a piece? Which is a really interesting point, but many improvisers, myself included, participate in imp improvised music that is coherent to some people, is largely coherent. So it, it has somehow 
works, it, works out this kind of form. And the question is, what part of the brain is minding the store about structure and form when you're so busy dealing with the moment? It's a very fascinating, but they, there's some actual study going on about, about this with scientists and neurologists. I don't know if it's gonna, if they're ever gonna really sort it out from that point of view, but, but it, is, it is an interesting notion that there is a kind of double thing going on, this, this sense of, of form and logic and, and coherence and the desire to put it together. And I also believe that part of the responsibility of form and logic and coherence is in, is in your chair, because you as the listener are sitting here un, bewit, unknowingly, perhaps, but, but maybe knowingly, actually trying to make sense out of what you're experiencing. You're sitting here, so what's going on? Okay, so, hold on a minute, what did he just do? Okay, he did this, you know, and so your, your mind is like kind of helping to organize all these things that, that are happening. So, in a way, that's what I mean, there's a kind of an intelligence going on that's outside of the music, that's in the room, producing this, this trying to put things together. I'll be home tomorrow.